The bench would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we record this podcast, the Yagara and Turrbal people. We want to pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And with that, welcome to the bench. On today's episode, we're discussing the Royal Commission into Misconduct in the Banking, Superannuation and Financial Services. And just for a bit of context before we begin, we're sitting in the recording studio at the moment and the bench that we're sitting on is ridiculously uncomfortable. It is so uncomfortable and my computer's just, it's just not sitting right today. There's a massive crack in the centre as well. I don't know where that's from. Definitely not us. Yeah, no, definitely wasn't our fault. Don't look at me. So back on topic, the Royal Commission. Although it was established in late 2017 and released its final report in early 2019, the behaviour that led up to its conception can be traced back to the era of financial deregulation, almost four decades ago. Which was well before our time. Well and truly before our time. So there's a lot to unpack here. Unsurprisingly, this podcast is neither comprehensive nor definitive. And I think we could probably both talk at length about the misconduct and its numerous case studies. There are so many. So many, it's ridiculous. But unfortunately, we don't have the time and we don't want to bore you with technicalities and legalese. The material we discuss in this podcast contains, in our view at least, the most interesting aspects of this indelible stain on the reputation of our nation's biggest financial institutions. And that's a big call. It is, it is, but I think warranted here. Absolutely. I remember everyone when this report came out, even Mm. defenders of the bank Mm. were shocked by the findings of this commission. The commissioner, in fact, was shocked in a number of hearings. He was incredulous when he was asking questions, but we'll get to that. Yes. And and I guess we, we both hope that you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoyed researching it. So, Henry, could you tell me a little bit of context here? Yeah, of course. The year is 2013, and investigative reporter Adele Ferguson gets a call from National Senator John Williams. It's about the Commonwealth Bank, and it's big. The content of that call and the events that unfolded afterwards ripped a band-aid off one of the most egregious examples of corporate greed and misconduct in this country to date. And so what exactly did this involve? What institutions came in the firing line here? So there were four main institutions and they were the big four banks, Westpac, CBA, ANZ and NAB. There were others, of course, but Mm -hmm. just for the sake of of time, we're going to focus on the big four. They aggressively pursued profit at all costs. So, Eddie, do you want to give us a couple of examples? I sure can. So, it was about 2014 when it came to light that CBA was engaged in money laundering for drug syndicates, turning a blind eye to the financing of terrorism, avoiding their legal reporting obligations, and irresponsible foreign currency trading, which we will talk in depth about in a moment. And it was about a year later in 2015 that NAB paid millions in hush money in compensation to customers who had received bad financial planning advice. All the while this was happening, Westpac rigged a key interest rate, the bank bill swap rate. It also fraudulently lent millions to elderly pensioners. It also withheld millions in benefits from home loans, credit cards and bank accounts that it owed to customers. And you might ask yourself, what were the consequences of this? Well, initially, there were none at all. So about 16 months later, and only two of the 150 cases reported by CBA insiders led to bankers losing their jobs. Nine led to formal warnings, and 115 resulted in no formal discipline whatsoever. So I asked myself why this is particularly surprising. 
At that time, Australia's financial regulator ASIC was predominantly government funded to the tune of 400 million 500,000. According to their 2014 financial reports, CBA pulled in 8.6 billion in net profit, NAB 5.3, Westpac 7.6. Eddie, ANZ? That was 7.3 billion. Wow. And I remember when I first read these figures, looking at 400 million 500,000, I was thinking that's plenty of money. <laughs> Absolutely pales in comparison to the sort of money that the big four were raking in at this point. And so in comparison, what was the figure? So CBA's net profit that year was 21 times the size of ASIC's entire budget. So it kind of comes as no wonder that ASIC's effectiveness was comparable to, I don't know, the League of Nations. Mm. But yeah, back on task, back to the Royal Commission itself. Senator Williams' call in 2013 sparked Ferguson's investigation and eventual expose into the behaviour of the Big Four. Now, for all intents and purposes, there are two types of commission. A royal commission, which is established by and reports to the government, and a commission of inquiry, which is established by and reports to parliament. The then Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull and his treasurer Scott Morrison were violently opposed to the idea of either. It should come as no shock to anyone that the big four banks were also not fans. And their opposition did very little to assuage mounting public and political pressure. Coalition backbenchers were revolting and preparing to cross the floor to join Labour, the Greens, Independence and One Nation. Turnbull's administration at that point was falling very quickly in the polls. Speculation was running rampant. Lobbyists descended upon Canberra. Parliament, to say the least, was on edge. And so what happened in March 2017? So on the 21st of March it was, in 2017, the Greens introduced a private member's bill for a royal commission into the Senate. Using this as inspiration, the National Senator Barry O'Sullivan discussed a new bill with his colleague Williams, who we mentioned before, that would incorporate the Greens bill and establish a commission of inquiry. That is to say, the second kind of commission that Henry mentioned, the one that reports to Parliament. Independent MP Bob Casser, and this is potentially my favourite part, (laughs) temporarily turned his attention away from crocodiles in northern Queensland and threw his support behind the idea. He ain't spending any more time on it. No, he definitely isn't. But neither were many other MPs and senators. They figured they had the votes and they were probably right. The Big Four, in full damage control mode, sent Morrison a letter calling for a royal commission on the afternoon of Wednesday the 29th of November. This U-turn reflected their realisation of the inevitable. At least if the government established the commission, it could restrict the scope of its findings, control the narrative and minimise the damage. At least they were self-aware. At least they were. So by 9am the next day, Turnbull announced the royal commission. It had a budget of 75 million was headed by former High Court Justice Kenneth Madison Hayne and had 12 months to deliver its findings. Most importantly, it couldn't award compensation or cover matters that overlapped with other inquiries or judicial proceedings. This narrow scope put much of the bank's activity out of the Commission's remit. Opposition leader Bill Shorten opined as much. He said that Turnbull's announcement only came after receiving a permission slip from the Big Four. Turnbull sank lower in the polls. In the wake of the Royal Commission being announced, your average person with a bank account probably had a few questions. The questions probably went along the lines of, why now? And what exactly will this achieve? I mean, sure, corporate cover-ups and whistleblowers weren't exactly unprecedented in the Australian financial sector, but what could possibly be going on in the shadows to warrant this level of scrutiny? 
Now, a lot of the fraud, funds mismanagement, immorality and hard sell culture that we will discuss in this episode dates way back to the deregulation of the finance industry in the 1980s. The catalyst for the overhaul and restructuring of Australia's economy and banks was the election of Bob Hawke. He was the new and popular leader of the Australian Labour Party. His election victory in March 1983 marked the end of the coalition's seven-year-long vice grip on power. In his election speech, Hawke offered Australians a program to produce growth and expansion in the economy, as well as achievable goals for the rebuilding and reconstruction of the nation. Now, this was all in the context of a lingering recession, with double-figure inflation rates, crippling budget deficit, and a 10% unemployment rate. But that didn't matter because Hawke's commitment to a financial revolution was pretty well received by the Australian public. And rightfully so. It seemed time to shake things up. So your next question logically might be, how did the Labour government plan to tackle this dire state of affairs? Paul Keating, the new treasurer, proffered a solution. Opening Australia's economy to market forces. After all, it was a strategy that had worked for other foreign leaders, such as Maggie Thatcher of the UK and Ronald Reagan of the US. And that's how it all began. So between 1983 and 1996, the Labor government oversaw the meteoric rise of the banks, following a long period of privatisation, deregulation and the entry of foreign competitors into the Australian market. In fact, no less than 16 foreign banks came to Australia in 1985, and this effectively doubled the number of banks in the country and decimated the market share once held by Australian financial institutions. They were well and truly feeling the heat by this point. So local banks scrambled to formulate strategies to retain staff and customers. New incentives and bonuses were offered to staff who were able to push financial products. And the focus shifted from the provision of prudent financial services tailored to the individual and turned to the relentless and unconscionable flogging of ill-suited financial products to meet sales targets. The drastic increase in revenue enjoyed by the Australian banks as a result of this behaviour would almost be impressive had it not come at the expense of countless Australians who fell victim to their predatory behaviour. Let me just give you one example, Eddie, of how the bank's profit-hungry nature and market share destroyed the lives of everyday Australians. This was the foreign currency loan scandal. Okay, I've read a little bit about this one, so let's kick it off. This scandal involved loans that were mercilessly flogged by Westpac, CBA, ANZ and NAP post-deregulation. Cast your mind back to a little earlier in the episode, and we mentioned a man by the name of John Williams. He was fondly referred to as Wacker. He was a national senator who blew the whistle on CBA's malpractice and an instrumental figure in bringing about the Royal Commission. Before Wacker became a senator, he was a sheep farmer. Relatively humble beginnings then. From Grazia to a parliamentarian. Mm. Interesting 180. But in January 1985, Wacker met with a bank manager at CBA in the rural town of Inverell, New South Wales. After the impacts of a devastating drought in 1982 on the farming industry, Wacker and his family were really struggling to make ends meet. He needed a $200,000 loan to repay existing loan debts and afford basic living expenses. Little did he know that he was about to be swindled and set on a path of financial ruin. Discussions with his bank manager turned to the merit of foreign currency loans, which offered substantially lower interest rates than standard variable rates. In this case, Wacker was advised to take out a foreign currency loan in Swiss francs. Interesting. Yeah. So I'll preempt the question, what exactly is a foreign currency loan? I'll tell you the same story that was sold to Wacker in a meeting at CBA's head office in Sydney. 
Imagine that you have been inundated with historical data, charts, graphs, the lot, and they all demonstrate the reliability and stability of the Swiss franc against the Australian dollar. You've also been offered assurance that the bank will guide you in the management of your loan. You've been promised that the bank is constantly in touch with the markets. You have no reason not to trust them. After all, Australian banks had spent over a century cultivating a relationship of respect and trust with the customers who relied upon their services. A compelling case has been laid out before you, and here is the best part. Your loan will only attract a 6% interest rate, compared to the standard rate of 15%. The one catch? You will need to take out a minimum of $500,000 to secure that 6% interest rate. You, like Wacker did at the time, ask what could go wrong. And the bank manager responds, absolutely nothing. (laughs) Now, if that seems too good to be true, it's because it was... Wacker Williams walked away from his meeting with a whopping $640,000 loan in Swiss francs. That's over triple the amount he initially asked for. Ominously, Wacker was not informed of the risks associated with his foreign currency loan. He didn't have the skills he needed to understand and manage it. With the $640,000 in his pocket, he bought two investment properties, paid off his debts and placed the remaining $100,000 in a CBA investment account. So this move would theoretically earn a higher interest rate than what was being charged on his foreign currency loan. But it was devastating for him. Within two weeks of signing that loan, the Aussie dollar plunged, losing value against other foreign currencies, including the Swiss franc. Over the following two years, the value continued to plummet. The Australian dollar, which once held a value of 2.2 Swiss francs, was now worth less than one Swiss franc. And the size of Wacker's debt skyrocketed. From $640,000 to a staggering $1.5 million. Which is an impressive amount and one that he'd never be able to repay. I think your average person would be absolutely mortified and mm. bewildered by this. Mm. And stressed as well. The fact of the matter was that thousands of Australians found themselves in similar positions, in over their heads in debt and beyond the brink of financial ruin. I'd say this would have been a really ideal time for the banks to step in with a solution and honour their promises of safe and secure loans. But somehow I suspect that isn't what happened. You would be absolutely correct. How did I guess? The banks began demanding additional funds from their borrowers to replenish their original deposits. If the customers were unable to do so, the banks seized and sold their assets. Now, this is a fairly common practice, but the issue here is that the assets were often sold at knockdown prices to favoured parties. Family homes and businesses were all fair game. So in Wacker's case, the farm his family had owned and nurtured for five generations and his newly purchased investment properties were sold off by the bank to pay his debts. As it transpires, one of his investment properties was a three-bedroom beachfront unit in Byron Bay. Pretty schmick. But that one was sold off to the local CBA branch manager for a measly $80,000. If I had a three-bedroom unit on the beachfront in Byron Bay, I don't think I'd move back to Brisbane. I don't think I'd move back to Brisbane. And at the very least, I'd probably expect a couple of million for that one. Yeah, not 80 grand. And even relative to the time back in the 80s, that is still ridiculously undercut. Yeah. But Eddie, don't worry, because at long last, the bank offered a lifeline to some customers. They advised them to trade the currency on the foreign exchange market. CBA told Wacker that if he rang the bank every morning, their advisory room would be able to trade his currency for him. And a manager of that exact same trading room said to Wacker that he could get back to the original amount of his debt, being that figure of $640,000, 
within two years by doing this. I wonder if I could also rebuy that three-bedroom beachfront on Byron Bay. Look, we're getting closer to market price, but I'd still say we're not quite there. Not quite. (laughs) Conveniently, though, all of CBA's foreign exchange traders were making money with every trade he made. Unsurprisingly, their advice to trade was not the foolproof solution they held it out to be. When foreign currency loans began to attract negative attention in mainstream media, the bank blamed the borrowers. So the bank claimed that the borrowers were savvy investors whose greed for money caused them to overlook the bank's multiple warnings about the loan-associated risks. It became clear that the banks, particularly Westpac and CBA, were very much aware of the problems with the foreign currency loans by the mid-1980s. They declined to inform their customers, however. In fact, two letters addressed to Westpac from the law firm Allen, Allen and Hemsley, which is now well known as Allen Linklaters, were anonymously leaked to a journalist at the Sydney Morning Herald. These letters implicated one of Westpac's currency trading subsidiaries, called PPL for short, in illegal foreign currency loans. Allen's provided their advice after examining 50,000 internal Westpac documents and interviewing members of staff. Just a spot of light reading. No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> And the lawyers at Allen's ultimately concluded that the foreign exchange division was very badly mismanaged and that senior management were aware of the severity of the situation by July 1986, but conveniently turned a blind eye. Allen suggested that if customers decided to take legal action, they would most likely succeed. So they recommended that Westpac ought to keep close and cordial contact with all prospective litigants. Allen's further recommended that Westpac avoid litigation at any reasonable cost and ensure any concessions given to borrowers were only made in exchange for a complete release of legal action. Allen's emphasised the importance of taking all practical steps to ensure that PPL's weaknesses, as they were termed, Mm -hmm. were not revealed to anyone outside of the board and senior management. As I'm sure you can imagine, Westpac worked hard to suppress these letters and obtained injunctions in the New South Wales Supreme Court to stop them from ever being published. Westpac actually argued that the documents were stolen, claimed copyright infringement, and even had to seek legal compensation for the leak. Moving on from the foreign currency loan scandal, I want to talk to you a little bit about some of the issues with the life insurance policies that were given out by the banks at the time. It's a fascinating area. Now, the average punter would hope that an insurance policy, whether it be for your home, life or income, would provide some peace of mind should the worst eventuate. Maybe the average punter would be surprised that CBA's insurance branch, Cominsure, was in the practice of regularly losing files pressuring doctors to change their opinions and denying claims. To illustrate, after an uptick in claims for bladder cancer, they tightened their definition of the illness using a medical definition that must have been widely accepted in the 1800s or thereabouts, but they did so in a way that avoided negatively impacting their insurance product ratings. One real-world example of Cominshaw's malpractice was James Kessel. Kessel was a 46-year-old mechanic living in the iconically named town of Weewa in New South Wales. Sounds like something Borat would like. It does. He lived in a tin shed, though, and had no money to his name, but he dutifully paid insurance premiums for the trauma policy he owned for over 25 years. In late 2014, he had a heart attack, which caused his heart to stop completely. It had to be restarted by a defibrillator. His claim was denied because his blood levels didn't contain enough troponin-1, a chemical that indicates a heart attack. Although the updated threshold level of troponin was lowered over a decade prior, Cominshaw continued to use the old definition, which required higher levels. 
An email from the Commonshore Committee warned that rejecting Kessel's claim would attract unwanted attention from the Financial Ombudsman Service. It instead recommended an ex gratia payment. No payment was ever made. Instead, CBA's PR team alleged that Kessel and his brother, who had also lodged a claim and had since died, had faked their heart attacks to defraud Commonshore. Reading this left me absolutely speechless. But this brings us to the Commission's findings. Life insurance claims are excluded from the definition of financial service. There is no obligation for an insurance company to act efficiently, honestly, and fairly in assessing claims and determining payouts. ASIC, therefore, had limited ability to deal with claims that had been extensively and unnecessarily delayed. There is a duty of the utmost good faith under the 1984 Insurance Contracts Act, but breaches of this duty don't attract penalties. So when the head of Commonshore, Helen Troop, was questioned during the commission hearings in 2017, her company's misleading adverts were paraded as an example of misconduct. One ad read, This cover can pay a lump sum if you suffer any of our specified trauma conditions, such as cancer, heart attack or stroke. I think it should have read, This cover will most likely not be paid even if you suffer all of our specific trauma conditions, And even if you do, we will change their definitions anyway. Troop stated that the policy exclusions in all their glory can be found in the relevant product disclosure statements, or PDS for short. Now, Henry, it's my understanding you've done a little bit of work in insurance. I have, actually, and I've personally had to sit through and read 25 different home insurance PDSs in excruciating detail. They are dense, riddled with exceptions, and impossible to understand. And most importantly, who has the time or energy? Obviously, Helen Troop, right? (laughs) Oh, and by the way, her LinkedIn profile lists marketing as one of her specialties. (laughs) Sounds fantastic. (laughs) But yeah, for all of those that are interested, we've attached a link to her LinkedIn in the description. But back to the ads. ASIC ultimately held the view that the adverts were misleading and deceptive. But luckily for Commonshore, their slap on the wrist came in the form of a $300,000 donation to the community, whatever that means. It means that they didn't have to pay the $2 million fine for each instance of misleading and deceptive conduct as stipulated by the ASIC Act of 2001. But getting off lightly doesn't even begin to cover it. Let me read the email correspondence between ASIC's Senior Executive Leader of Financial Services Enforcement, it's a mouthful, Tim Mullerly, and Commonshore. Tim Mullerly writes, We will need to agree with Commonshore the timing of a number of steps, the community benefit payment recipient, and the nature and details of the review. Mullerly then continues to ask whether this is sufficient for Commonshore to resolve the matter, and whether Commonshore is happy to make a community donation. But after receiving no response from the bank, Mullerly sent a follow-up email. The head of Australia's financial regulator sent a follow-up email to a bank that had broken the law to politely ask whether the proposed penalties were sufficient. When CBA finally responded, they offered an alternative media release statement. ASIC then dutifully published their version in the weeks before Christmas on the 18th of December 2017. Everyone was too busy preparing for the great migration of in-laws to read it. Or maybe that was the idea, Eddie. We've attached a link to this in the description if you'd like to see for yourself. As an aside, Commonsure has since been sold to Hong Kong-based AIA and Helen Troop now works as the CEO of CBHS Health Fund. So after this whirlwind tour of the Royal Commission, you're probably wondering what Chief Justice Hayne actually recommended in his report. I know I was. So in all, there were 76 recommendations in the final report. They're on pages 20 to 42 of Volume 1 if you're interested. 
Having said that, volume one is not exactly a page turner. None of the recommendations call for the structural reform of the banks, ASIC, or Australia's financial system more broadly. The most hardline approach Hain took in delivering his recommendations was to encourage the close monitoring of ASIC civil enforcement capability. If ASIC continues to not enforce financial regulation in the future, the establishment of a civil enforcement agency should be considered. Financial incentives, including salaries and bonuses, were left to remuneration committees. Financial advice offered by the banks, despite being found to not be in the interest of customers 75% of the time... 75%? Yep, they were left virtually untouched. Hain only recommended an annual review of targets and bonuses to frontline staff, one of the root causes of aggressive and irresponsible lending. Ultimately, he left it up to the banks themselves to make improvements. The day after this report was released, more than $19 billion was added to the market value of the big four banks. In effect, the world kept spinning. Chillingly, this is eerily reminiscent of the GFC, which resulted in only one imprisonment. Except in this case, no one was imprisoned. Only two NAB executives, Ken Henry and Andrew Thorburn, suffered significant consequences, if you can call them that. Hain, for some reason, decided he didn't like either and singled them out for criticism on page 411. As a result, NAB's board of directors decided that both men should resign, which they promptly did. Instead of a $22 million performance payout, Thorburn only received somewhere over a million in severance. I personally struggled to sympathise with that figure. <laughs> and according to LinkedIn, Thorburn is now a chairman of Sentient Impact Group. His biography reads, Experienced CEO and Leader. Deploying capital to achieve transformational change that benefits people and society. And that concludes our episode on the Royal Commission into Misconduct in the Banking, Superannuation and Financial Services. Despite the many hours we spent discussing, researching and preparing this episode, we've barely scratched the surface. If you'd like to learn more, I can't recommend Adele Ferguson's book, Banking Bad, highly enough. And Henry and I were brainstorming for ideas for this podcast mm. and we always have to come up with topics, right? And reading this book is absolutely what sent me on this mad tangent. And I have to confess that before I read it, I knew barely anything about this. Neither did I. I, I, can't, I genuinely can't recommend it highly enough. As an amendment to a comment I made on our last episode about all this information being available in our show notes, it will be, but as soon as our website is up and running. In the meantime, I hope the hyperlinks in the description are enough. So Henry... Would you like to read us out? Thank you for listening. We've been your hosts, Henry and Eddie, on the bench. We hope that you found a discussion of this case to be interesting and informative. Our next episode will be uploaded in a fortnight, but until then, the bench is no longer in session. <laughs>